if the koala or the hedgehog or the fox doesn't care who owns the land, then we shouldn't either. And we should just be interested in delivering for the wildlife and for us, regardless of the nature of the ownership. So it's partially about all the things we can do as individuals, but it's also about the policy frameworks and the strategic planning being in such a way that it breaks down these boundaries, which just aren't helpful to anyone or thing. Welcome to the Future City Podcast, where we speak with extraordinary people you normally wouldn't hear from about the future of cities. From cocktail artists to urban planners, green thumbs to financial analysts, we share stories about how these creative thinkers and doers are shaping the cities you live in. Get ready to explore this new normal. Hi, thanks for joining us for the Future City Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Raven Ellison. He's a London-based guerrilla geographer. He's a National Geographic Explorer, a former geography teacher, and led the campaign to make London the first national park city. He's walked across all of the UK's national parks and cities wearing a mind-reading device. He's also walked the height of Mount Everest, only using London buildings. He's authored children's books and completed hundreds of adventures all over the country uh, with his son. So as you can tell, he's got an incredibly interesting and diverse background, combining creative exploration, geography, and communication to tackle social and environmental challenges. Daniel, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. We, we want to kick off with a question we always ask, which is, you know, what is the big idea that your curiosity has led you to explore through the work that you do? Well, I guess sort of my biggest idea that I've been working on for the last sort of seven, eight years is around this idea of transforming cities into new kinds of national parks, national park cities. And it's an, an idea that I think London really inspired me to work on and the national parks in the UK inspired me to, to work on, but really is translatable and can work, I think, for cities all around the world. Mm. Fantastic. So t- tell us... Like, what does it even mean to be a national park city? I'm, I'm, we're aware that London is the first, and of course, everyone has an experience of going to a national park, but what is it about the way that a city can be designed or redesigned or reimagined that, you know, p- this project picks up? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, the idea that a city can be a, a national park sounds like a, maybe a completely crazy idea. Like, how can that be possible? Because a national park almost seems to be like the complete opposite of what a city is about and, and the other way around. Um, but the idea really came about because when you look at national parks around the world, there are national parks that are every major type of um, habitat and landscape that's recognised by all the big international organisations. So there's national parks that are rainforests, that are deserts, that are moorland, that are uh, big glaciers, all kinds of um, uh, landscape and habitat. Apart from the world's fastest growing habitat, uh, which is urban areas. Now, urban areas, to my view, the wildlife, the the animals, the species that live inside them aren't worth less than those that are in the countryside. And actually quite often urban areas, counterintuitively, can be more abundant with life than certainly the farmland, often deserts and other places that you get where there are currently um, national parks and different types of of, uh, protected areas. So, it, from my point of view, um, you know, if we're not to be sort of prejudiced against humans and if we're not that live in cities and if we're not going to be prejudiced against the urban red foxes and the peregrine falcons that happen to live in the urban habitat, then why not think of cities um, as national parks too? But on the journey, I began to realise really 
as a geographer, I sort of came at this from a, a perspective of representation and saying, well, why would we be othering and excluding urban areas from this family of national parks? Mm. But about six months to a year into the project, I, I came to realise that really what's missing is national park thinking is missing from cities. You know, landscape scale, super inclusive, whole system thinking about how we can uh, restore and protect nature to improve the quality of life of the species in that environment, but also the people that live there um, and, uh, and work there too. What if we applied that thinking from rural areas to urban areas, and how could that make life better for people? And so really that's what it's more about. So it started off with this point about representation and why we're excluding cities, but actually then it flipped in my mind to being far more about how we can use national park thinking to improve life in cities. What's um, What are some of the tangible shifts? Because of course the mindset shift or the kind of the conceiving of what a city can feel like to move, live, work, learn in, um, and I know that, you know, the National Park City Initiative is new. I think it was launched. London was announced last year um, in 2019. What are you hoping is going to shift for, you know, the citizens in some of the, you know, plethora of suburbs all around London because of this, this particular initiative? Well, you know, at the moment, I think we face a number of different crises, right? Health yeah. crises, climate crises, ecological crises, societal crises there's all these different crises that are playing out and, and fundamentally to to a greater or lesser extent having a better relationship with nature inside cities or um cities have a, having a better relationship with nature for the places that they affect around the world would go a long way towards um both helping people be more resilient at tackling those problems but also mitigating those problems um as well and fundamentally although this is quite big scale thinking Fundamentally, it's about saying if we grew more stuff, right, closer to where we live, and if we walked more, if we did those two things a lot, then not only would that make a big difference to our own quality of life and our health and our well-being and our personal resilience, but when you then scale it up across millions of people doing it across a landscape, it can be transformative at a landscape scale too. So we calculated in London, for example, that if every Londoner on average was to make one square metre of the city green or blue, we'd make the majority of the city green or blue. And what would that do? It would mean that today, which is like a pretty scary climate hot day of sort of 37 degrees in London, which it should not be right now, would be a cooler day. The chances of the storms that are coming later this week as a result of the heating, the chance of that causing um, widespread flooding, right, would also be significantly reduced. Um, in this country, more people are dying now, a bit weird for Britain this is, more people are dying now of heat in the summertime than cold in the wintertime. Well, neither of those things are good things, but really we should not be dying um, because of hot temperatures. And having more tree canopy cover, more green coverage, uh, better design of architecture can all tackle those things as well. So I could go on and on, but, but what we often talk about within the National Park City movement is like a really simple theory of change, which I think helps articulate it quite nicely. So the vision of the National Park City, right, the vision is fundamentally about making the city progressively greener, healthier, wilder, getting more people outdoors out, uh, more of the time and creating a new identity, both for people living in the city um, and also for the city itself, right, the, the, the businesses, the organisations that, that make it up. And set to that backdrop, set to that idea, there's then the opportunity to create 
opportunities for creativity and political tension about then rising to the challenge or the opportunity about what it means to live in a national park city. And you can summarize that into sort of two questions. So the first question really is around what if, right? So we live in a national park city. So what if there's more outdoor learning in schools? What if otters could swim in our canals? We're living in our canals more. What if there were more children on my street outside than there are cars parked up, right? What if we go on and on and on? But then the follow-up question that's really important which is, which is around where the political tension is. And this is saying, well, if we live in a national park city, what do you mean you want to build in my green space? And why isn't that building biophilic? And, and why isn't there more otters in my canal? And why isn't there like proper outdoor learning in schools the whole time? And you only have to have a small number of parents going into a school and saying, well, why not? Why isn't this happening? To actually start to get some serious traction. So we're not there yet in terms of London, in terms of all those things. But... You know, I take inspiration from the rewilding movement. I'm not as impatient. I'm not as patient as some of them, but to get our deciduous oak woodlands back to where they should be in this country, it'll take a thousand years for the trees to grow to fall over. Eight hundred years later, to rot down into the ground and for it to come back up again. And I think that some of the problems around children being disconnected from nature, um, the the architecture of our buildings, planning decisions are quite often generational changes. So for me, the success of the National Park City will be a generational thing, probably, where hopefully within my lifetime, um, we'll start to see that the city is greener from space and people are living greener, healthier, longer lives. That's the ambition. Mm. Dan, it seems, you know, it seems like there's a big shift that needs to happen here. You know, it's one thing to put a a stake in the ground and call it a National Park City. But then, uh, you know, I I was walking around Central Park in New York City the other day. And uh, we were thinking, like, what is the urban ecology? What are the real animals that are in this space? And, you know, we basically got rats and pigeons, you know. And so, and, you know, while it sounds like a grandiose, you know, thing to want to You're not being nice enough to New York. You guys have cleaned up, um, you guys have cleaned up your rivers. And you've got, like, massive whales breaching off the side of New York. And you've got, like, an abundance (laughs) of species in in New York, especially greater uh, New York area as well, so... (laughs) <laughs> I'm not an economist on you, but we could find someone to challenge you on your, your yeah. rats and pigeons. And I would also challenge you on how awesome rats and pigeons are, right? And how, you know, sometimes we need to work with the life that we have and celebrate the fact that pigeons are if pigeons were rare, people would love pigeons. They'd be like, oh, look at the pink on their neck and look how they That's can hover like a hummingbird. And they're like really fast. People, anyway, sorry, go for it. But rats <laughs> and pigeons, I like no, them. But just... But just you're spot on. And it's, it's this idea that um, I went to the, I was speaking to a friend who was actually saying that they went to a, an animal rescue center here in New York City. And you think that the terminology sounds really grandiose, but when you walk in, you realize that it's actually just, you know, a bunch of busted pigeons and a bunch of busted rats, really. Like these are the main species that are getting, that are, that are in trouble right now in, in our ecology. And I wonder what are the, the gaps or what are the things that we need to overcome? Or maybe the, the biggest pushback you've seen about getting this to a point of a national park city. And is it because it's very hard for us to look at what's really there or really appreciate what's in front of us rather than actually making it even more diverse or discovering the whales that are actually on the other side of the, of the, yeah, of the dock. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sorry for attacking you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, so a lot of people, especially less so in the Australian context around potential national park cities, there actually, but it was very interesting in the US context um, how many people who work in parks have not only have a very strong idea about what a national park is, right? But they also have a very strong idea about what Americans think about what a national park is as well. And so those, although the language 
So for many people, the language is a barrier, actually, the idea of there being national park cities in some countries in the world. And we could dig into a whole range of problems around that in different cultural contexts. But there are two really important things. So firstly, um, I think that the, the national park language creates a vernacular where we have a common understanding of what the purpose of this landscape is for. For, for better relationships mm. with nature, for my benefit, for your benefit, and to benefit nature. So straight away, mm. we have a, a way to have a conversation that maybe that otherwise isn't language to satisfactorily do that around. And projects that are just around having more trees in cities or making cities greener miss out on the fact that skateboarding and rock climbing happen in cities, and that's pretty cool too, right? Mm. Um, but then there's this other bit where, as an educator, I see that the, the problem in the language being the opportunity to give people epiphanies because there's something broken actually in our culture. So the thing that's broken in our culture is the way that we other nature, think that we're superior to nature. And as a result of that, nature is coming back to bite us pretty severely, both through COVID and through um, climate change right now. So we need to have this special relationship with nature and talking about how a city can also be a national park, a national park city, helps to give people the epiphany that they then start to think about where they live differently. So not for everybody, but we know that there are you know, hundreds of people that we come in contact with who were not thinking about how their garden could be part of a nature reserve or how their garden being connected to other gardens was really important or um, you know, whatever the things might be, or they wouldn't have thought about going for a walk in the city to enjoy the nature there because they thought that somehow that nature was not so significant. So um, I think what the National Park City does is it gives us a vernacular, it gives us a way to, um, a common language, it gives us a way to challenge some ideas that we have that are fundamentally wrong about our relationship with nature. And then it also says, do you know what? And this is a really cool bit. For thousands of years, people have already been doing this stuff in cities. The problem is that that stuff that's been happening for thousands of years isn't happening quickly enough or equitably enough or in some cities at all. Um, and so the National Park City is a way to try and encourage more of those things that are happening anyway to happen more often. New York has it, right? Adelaide has it. London has it. But we all have massive problems of inequality of access and quality to green space and nature. Right? You know that, right? You feel that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's fascinating to think through because our connection to nature is about really a connection to something that's bigger than ourselves. And we look at our backyard as really just my backyard, right? Rather than, oh, this is a piece of a larger backyard, which may be, you know, the, the green spaces that are connected between, like you said, Central mm -hmm. Park to, to my backyard to another rooftop. These are all like green corridors that sit around the city, but we don't really visualize them or think about them. It's like, oh, I'm part of this bigger natural collective in a, in a city, you know? Um, and it's interesting. I noticed in your in your work, you you're, you're called the gorilla the gorilla geographer. I, a gorilla geographer. There's more than one, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> you're one of many gorilla geographers. But it's it's an interesting concept. I've never heard that before. What what is a gorilla geographer, and and what do they do? Um, I don't know what others do. Um, so guerrilla geography is radical, alternative, creative, surprising geographies doing extraordinary things. Uh, to make things that are extraordinary, in my view, more ordinary in every day. So trying to do better on the environment and social issues, but through guerrilla acts. And, and within the toolkit of guerrilla geography, I'm going to try not to culturally appropriate other practices too much here. Um, but people are familiar with guerrilla gardening, right? Um, which is fundamentally about occupying a space, making it greener and wilder and better. And so changing 
how people feel about that place and their understanding of how they can contribute to that place as well. Or street art, the geographic concept of taking something out of place, right? And put it, so taking the artwork and putting it somewhere that confronts you with an idea that gets you thinking differently about where you are. But even within the artwork, he'll often switch out, I don't know, a grenade or a truncheon for some flowers, which then it gets, again, gets you thinking again by taking that thing out of place, how much you feel differently about it. So there are these different geographic concepts around occupation, trespass, taking things out of place, all these types of things that we can play with. And by playing with those things, we can um, create new connections in our brains that enable us to have different ideas about our role in the world and the future that we can, we can create. Daniel, that's, uh, I, I love the passion with which you speak and I can imagine how impactful you would be in, with a group of young people in particular. You know, and, and so my question really relates to that. And, you know, ultimately kind of the way that we relate to nature is partially the way that we see others relating to it, what's kind of modelled and, and what's learned and, and, frankly, the mindset. And, you know, the, the idea that we consider nature as the other, and it reminds me of that, I think it's an Andy Goldsworthy line, which is, you know, when we say, you know, we forget that we are nature. And so when we say we're disconnected from nature, we're actually disconnected from ourselves. And so what do you think the role of kind of, of education movements um, around this work is, not just with the National Park City kind of movement, but even more broadly about us remembering it's not, or rediscovering perhaps, you know, because we've got a particular evolutionary story um, that we have, you know, about how do we, how do we take, how do we do that mindset work potentially so that people see themselves as part of this interconnected ecology and therefore get the benefits that we know and the evidence tells us they will get from being wilder, healthier, greener, et cetera. In our experience in London, and I think this is similar elsewhere, is that basically there's, there's a problem fundamentally on the demand side for nature. So there's plenty of people actually who want to do more forest schools, want to do more outdoor learning. There's plenty of teachers that if they were trained would love to be doing more of that kind of thing. But a combination of pressure through our education systems, the nature of our politics, all kinds of things on the demand side, there simply aren't enough parents fundamentally. I mean, children want to be in nature, right? There's a certain point at which maybe we break them and they don't want to anymore. Um, but, but parents, uh, you know, uh, parents will go into a school and they will say, where's my good maths lessons? Where are my good science lessons? They won't necessarily ask, what, what are you teaching my child in terms of empathy right now? Then they won't necessarily say at all, you know, what's happening in terms of outdoor learning in my school. And somehow we need to get things into a position where across predominantly some Western countries, there's a critical mass of parents basically saying, my child is going to be more productive, more creative, more well, um, and more well behaved, like all these good things, if a high portion of their day is spent learning outdoors. It may or may not be in nature, right? But, um, and so I think that fundamentally, that's the thing. And if we can increase the demand, the supply will be there. And then there's a conversation about, well, how do we make sure the quality of that learning is where it should be? And that then is about making sure that there's the spaces and the resources and the everything else but at the moment there just isn't the demand there people just don't care enough so i think that is the problem but i think that we can tip that i think we can tip that um because like i was saying before about the what if why nots you know if you've got a class of 30 kids you only have to have three or four parents saying you know why aren't they learning outdoors more uh, especially with covid especially with these different things to start creating that kind of change 
But for me, like on the environmental side of things, like I think this is going to be a slightly more challenging view, maybe. Um, I think fundamentally, as long as we read children's storybooks where we're tell telling them that they should really love eagles and they should really love pheasants and they should really love these different animals, but they can then eat like an unlimited number of chickens, unquestionably, um, or they can you know, know that they're eating an unlimited number of cows and morally there's no question about how much meat they're consuming. I don't think that, I think there's such an incongruence in our culture about why we prefer some species over others. That as long as that speciesism is um, taught or allowed in such a casual way, I don't see how we can ever persuade enough children to want to protect vultures or hyenas or, for that matter, even polar bears. Like maybe there'll be people will be disappointed if polar bears aren't there anymore, but we're not making enough investment to properly protect many of these species. I mean, Australia is in a very sad state at the moment, isn't it? I mean, if if Australia lost its koalas. I mean, can you imagine? And I just think that one, I just wonder if psychologically, you know, um, the reason why we don't push harder on protecting some of these things is because of our relationship with um, the natural world through what we eat. And I wonder whether, whether as long as from such a young age, that incongruence, that, 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 that rupture is there in our relationship with the natural world, that the, the only children who are going to still be interested in like woodlice and I don't know, do you have woodlice in Australia? You must have woodlice in Australia. Like, do you know what they are? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, well, like beetles, right? So bugs, whatever. The only kids who are in like bugs by the age of like 12, it's going to be like maybe like one in 10 kids. And by the time they're 18, it's like one in a hundred. It's becomes super niche, you know? So, yeah. So I kind of feel like if we don't fix actually our relationship very, very early on. Um, and I think the other thing that's a really crucial part of that chain um, is that we, we need to have more both intercultural and intergenerational wisdom passed down between generations. And it feels to me like in my country, uh, a lot of that is fairly broken right now. And some of the very best things that we have now is what our ancestors have left to us. So what are we doing to think about how we also will have an impact on future generations. I think that links to this point about our relationship with nature as well. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm really interested in this point. And coincidentally, my sister's a documentary filmmaker and her first documentary was called Murder Mouth. And the premise was that she would not eat any meat that she didn't directly kill herself. And it's to try to explore our relationship with animals. Because of course, when we say, well, where do you get beef from? Well, you get it from a supermarket. We kind of forget that there's an animal behind it. Um, you know, and, and kind of the vegan and the vegetarian movements, uh, you know, alongside those that insist upon carnism, um, which are people like me, at least for the moment. Um, I, I, there is a, there is an un discomfort. There's a discomfort that comes up, Daniel. I think when we start talking about that, because, you know, we all have preferences, you know, does the cuteness of the animal, and this was Al's point, you know, about rats and pigeons before, you know, in Central Park, does the, does the cuteness factor of the quokkas, in Western Australia, which are just the, quite literally the cutest animal that you could imagine, you know, and they have this little smile when you take a selfie with them, et cetera. You know, how much does that impact our desire to care for that species, knowing that, you know, by some measures we are in a really significant period of extinction right now, and you've brought up some of the really significant existential risk that we see? I, th I think it's interesting. This, there's almost like a divide. There's a bit of an overlap, but there's almost a divide in the thinking between conservationists 
who are interested primarily in species, let's say, yeah. right, um, versus the animal rights folk. And I think that the, the interplay between those two is interesting, but I think that... Um, I think there's a really interesting notion just to play with just the point about consent mm. and the, the importance of consent in a relationship. And I think it becomes emotionally very challenging for me. I mean, like none of us are perfect, right? We all have, um, are all hypocrites and we all have a negative impact and positive impact on the world in different ways. But I think that the issue of consent, both within our own species and interspecies or lack of it, I think, means that harming other animals intentionally for whatever reason is probably on balance, not very friendly. Um, it, it's probably where I'd go with it. But, but, but my point is, is less of for, for us to enter into a conversation that's quite problematic around our own personal choices and things. I'm coming more from the point of just segmentation of markets, right? That if you want to protect nature, if you're saying to kids that you can have as much of these species to eat as, as you want, and to not really know about what's happened to them, how you've got on the plate, then it would make sense for them to maybe also not like care or be interested in pangolin or some weird toad from Peru because you've segmented the market psychologically enough that the number of people who care about other animals is really small. So even if you want to, I think there's this, there's also this very unhelpful thing that exists almost where there's probably a truth that there's some forms of cattle ranching and farming that are quite good, right? And there's some cows that are very happy and then being killed and eaten probably might be okay. But the fact that story exists will mean that those like 99.9% .9 of people who can go to the supermarket and go to Safeway or Morrison's or wherever they're at and imagine that the possibility that their cow was raised in those conditions means that they're all very happy to make that choice. Whereas most people don't get a cow or chicken for their situation. Anyway, there's a connection here because if we're interested in people and cities at scale and their impact at this time of crisis on the wider world, then we shouldn't just be concerned about our interest with wildlife. We should also be interested in our relationship with the domestic life and the farmed life as well. Mm. And Dan, it's brilliant to think about how do you get someone down the path from, you know, their first interaction through to a point where they're really supporting this stuff. And I'm curious, um, you know, is there resistance to the National Park City or something, you know, you know, when we put these policy initiatives in place, uh, it's not always the most favored thing. You know, people aren't always like, oh, yeah, we'd love to turn this to National Park City. Wait a second. What does that actually mean? You know, and also how do you start people down the path of actually saying, Maybe it's an initial, uh, you know, love relationship with a pigeon through to a point where they're expecting to see otters and eventually something even more, you know, robust in their cities. But what's what's the resistance you've seen? And also, how do we take people down the path of accepting that this uh, this could be a really remarkable thing in their cities? Just I don't normally necessarily link um, my slightly fanatic ideas about why we should love pigeons to the National Park City or, <laughs> or, or dietary um, preferences, but... There, you know, these things do overlap, I think. Um, yeah. Interestingly, once, we've, once people have the epiphany of why it is that a, a city can be a national park, and once you deal with issues around planning and governance, so in other words, who decides around planning decisions and how it will be financed, and to be honest, those three questions, like only 1% of the public are interested in. Like most people just want to live in a, a greener, wilder city where they can have fun, right? And that's, that's the level at which 
most people in, in, engage. Actually, the problem we've had isn't that people are against it on the whole. They've needed to understand it, maybe. It's weirdly almost that I think that if we had some more people who were against it, we'd have more traction. Huh. Like we could almost we could almost do with um, a few protagonists in the story huh. who could say really negative things about it so that we could have more of a, a political platform to say, oh, no, but, you know, trees are great for this reason. or whatever. But instead, it's just like pretty much everyone's like, well, actually, the criticism we had a lot during the campaign was, well, you know, why should we support this? It's all motherhood and apple pie. Yeah. And I'm like, that's like the, the best repressed, like, insult I've ever heard. Like, motherhood and apple pie is, like, <laughs> clearly a good thing. <laughs> um, so, so the answer is, actually, it delivers a lot, of, a lot of things that are very good. So then the question is, how do you get the traction, maintain the traction, and get the right inputs and resources in to deliver it properly? And we're still working some of those things out. Mm. So we're doing some really cool projects at the moment and getting some really good traction. But but we need to achieve so much more. Yeah. But we're only one. Yeah. yeah. You know, you wouldn't expect that much more. Happy, happy birthday, so. you know, in any case. Thank you. Um, my, one of my favorite projects that we, we've just sort of just got underway with, sponsored by the outdoor brand Timberland, which is a really great brand to collaborate with because there's other outdoor brands that would sort of speak to particular demographics maybe that are typical national park demographics, whereas Timberland's strike accord may be more with a uh, more youthful sort of um, urban um, audience. And um, so they're, they're sponsored and working with us on a national park city ranger program, uh, where essentially we have a team of 50 volunteer rangers supported by a couple of members of staff and their job is to inspire and catalyze better practice across the city. And while we've got 50 of them now, the aim is that by 2025, 20, uh, we'll have 2,000 of these ranges. But, you know, you could imagine how across all the boroughs in, in New York or right across Adelaide, uh, you can imagine having volunteer National Park City rangers and not wandering around telling you off, uh, you know, doing the wrong things necessarily. They're not meant to be police. Um, but, but more... Um, um, showcasing what's really working in the city and saying, let's have more of this. Yeah. Love it's it. really guiding people through. And it, it's interesting to, to note that it's almost the apathy about the, the potential is, is potentially the risk is that people don't see what uh, there's an apathy to, to d defend it. And there's an apathy to, uh, to attack it as well. People are just kind of happy for you to get on with it really. Um, which is a really a big transition from where the environmental movement might've been, you know, even just 10 or 20 years ago where any environmental cord would have struck up a, a ton of uproar and, and defense, right? Versus now it's more like, oh yeah, we've kind of been down here before. So uh, it's interesting to see how that, that shift has happened. Yeah, well, I think that, I think that there's a couple of really key things that happened. I mean, like when you have like a, a tech startup, you know, um, timing is key, isn't it? Like you can have the best idea, but if your timing's out, I think that the, the National Park City sort of idea really came to the stage when two maybe really vital things were happening. Firstly, more evidence than ever that we need to have a better relationship with nature and all the benefits that would give to society and everything else. But at the same time, how much the environmental movement had largely failed <laughs> um, to win people over, to tackle climate change, to deal with the, the massive decline of species, mass extinction event happening around the world. So I think that one, on one level, people who didn't get it before would suddenly understand the importance of an idea like this. But then maybe some of those people who were more traditionally conservative, realizing that 
even though their work was very important and they've made very important contributions to science and to what we need to achieve in the world, that there has also been a systemic and structural failure to deliver on the protections that are necessary for us to have children not be afraid that civil war is going to break out because there isn't enough water around. Mm. Um, so, so anyway, I think if it came earlier by even a year or two, it would have been laughed out of the, out of the pub. Interesting. But I think it was just the right time. I've got, a, I've got a, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, some of our conversations, you know, in terms of, you know, the cultural life of a city embracing the weird. And I, I feel a bit dangerous, like, you know, National Park cities embrace the wild a little bit. Um, but, you know, one of the big themes that keeps emerging in all of these conversations is how do we know when we get there? You know, what are the metrics or what's the frame that we use? Uh, in our conversation with Claire Shine, she spoke very, you know, quite highly about the work of Kate Raworth and Donut Economics, for example. You know, the idea that we, we need new models, actually, to help change minds because maybe we can't change minds directly, but we can create tools where people can choose to use the tools to change their own mind. So when you know, what, what are the kind of, what are you seeing across all of your projects, not just the national park city movement um, in terms of the way that we might redefine success or a concept of progress, you know, obviously beyond economic growth, knowing that clearly economic participation is, is a key part of well-being and flourishing, but what are some of the emerging yeah, I, I, yeah, frames or references or metrics that, that you're kind of, you're thinking about? There's this great economist who I really like called Andrew Sims, who's done lots of work um, around climate and uh, actually is currently reading, leading something called the Rapid Transition Alliance and is collecting stories of when societies have rapidly transitioned or projects have rapidly transitioned and done transformative things as a way to show people what's possible. Um, but I remember seeing him speak at a festival, at a Wilderness Festival, I think it was, uh, sort of big music festival. And he was talking about economics and talking about measuring growth and talking about the, the, the problems with measuring different types of growth. And he just pointed out that while we were sat in this tent, all quite like wind up and enjoying the sunshine and things, pointing out how, the, how the, every one of that festival was growing in that moment. They were all growing. They were growing in their relationships, culturally, emotionally, maybe spiritually, they were growing. And I didn't feel like I needed to measure that, but I knew that everyone was growing. There was a hundred years between John Muir creating the first national park and the IUCN finally coming around to systemizing it with technical details of how you might measure uh, what success looks like. Um, and they did quite well in that time, a lot of them. I mean, some of them did really awful things like ethnic cleansing and, you know, all kinds of horrible things, but did did quite well. And, and I think that there's, I'm not saying that measurement isn't important, but, but, but measurement in wars and in children's education and all kinds of places sometimes can distort the way that people behave in ways that actually isn't very helpful. And you've got to wonder who's the measurement for. And on the whole, people who've been involved in the National Park City stuff, the main people who ask about measurement are civil servants who have been asked to look into it and they need to report to a boss. A lot of other people just get it. And I think when the Victorians planted their sort of trees and made parks in London, I'm not sure whether they were doing like, I'm not sure, I don't know what kind of risk assessments and risk and value assessments they were doing. I think maybe they just knew. And I think that there's all kinds of people who look after landscapes and each other and families and 
you know, when they read a story to their child at night, they're not like keeping a a chart necessarily, you know. So we talk a lot. We talk a lot about wiring and inspiring. Alison Barnes is one of our trustees, who is um, 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 also chief of the New Forest National Park in the UK. She really pushes us all the time to to say we're really in in the inspiring phase right now. The wiring's important, but what we really need to do is inspire lots of people to get involved. Just knowing that the things we're talking about doing, walking more, cycling more, and planting more stuff, like is just all good stuff. Um, and yes, metrics matter too. And we do have a, a way of we're looking at metrics. I mean, for me, I just want the city, London, to be greener from space and people to be living longer. Can I attribute either of those things directly to National Park City? No. Does that matter? No, not really. But we've got this thing called the State of the National Park City Report. And some of those things are like um, how many people are aware of the National Park City, um, um, how supportive of people are of it, have they done something to support it? So some quite inward things. But then all the things that matter, really, because it doesn't matter if they know that it's the National Park City or not, really, if they're doing things that contribute good things to it. But anyway, so... They're all metrics, which are things like more walking, more cycling, um, more habitat, more green space. But with all the things that we're listing, and we're still working on these at the moment, there are all things where when I tell you what the metric is, you can hear that you can contribute to that thing by doing that thing yourself. So how can we get more walking in the city? Well, we could, I could walk more. How can we have more trees in the city? Well, I could, I could plant a tree or look after a tree. And, and the importance there is that, that each of those things, the responsibility is shared between the mayor, councils, business, family, and family policy. I don't think we think enough about the idea of having policy and family towards these things, and then as an individual. So on one hand, I'm saying we should just go with how we feel, because actually that would get us a long way. But we are doing some metrics as well, but they're very, um, but they're very consumable metrics. So it's fascinating to to start to take it really deeply into the home. And sometimes even with the these initiatives, it's just about little tweaks or amplifying things we're already doing, right? Like you said, we're already cycling, we're already walking, we're already, you know, some of us even planting the trees. Um, and it's just a little bit a little bit more. How do we um, just emphasize that a bit more? Just like waking up a bit earlier or, you know, taking the dog for more walks, whatever it might be, just a little bit more, right? Um, yeah, it's definitely right a little bit more but but there's a, there's a, there is a policy angle to it as well which is that um that that a lot of people work in the silos of where they immediately have power and a lot of the conversation that we see on social media and in cities about trees for example is about street trees and about what government's doing around trees um in, in london 80% of trees in outer London, 60% of trees in central London are in private ownership. But the, the narrative is all around the public trees and around uh, government planting more trees because that's where they have power. But all the planning, for example, around green infrastructure in London, the, there's this thing called the Green, green Infrastructure uh, Plan, the in Green Grid. And although it looks like a complete map of all the green spaces and how everything joins up, Second paragraph into the document, it explains that it's not going to include private space. So when you consider that the majority of trees are in private ownership, that quarter of London is gardens, right? That to not include private citizens in those actions is kind of obviously ridiculous. But the reason why they're not is because there is they don't have power over those things. And equally, citizens in their own lives also have issues with who has power over certain spaces. So what I like to think of is 
the politics of like a hedgehog or a koala or whatever, if the koala or the hedgehog or the fox doesn't care who owns the land, then we shouldn't either. And we should just be interested in delivering for the wildlife and for us, regardless of the nature of the ownership. So it's partially about all the things we can do as individuals, but it's also about the policy frameworks and the strategic planning being in such a way that it breaks down these boundaries, which just aren't helpful to anyone or thing. Daniel, that, that is uh, just that, that final point there is so remarkable because it really blows up uh, the essence of so much of our policy has been built in our planning for, for as, as far as we know, has been built on the basis of land rights. You know, it's primarily been on, you know, who owns this land and how do we parcel up that land? And that has completely defined our civilization. And I'm not going to bury into because we've done it. We need a whole other hour just going to that one point you just made about if it wasn't a, about land rights, but about how a koala thinks about the land is how we should think about the land. That would just transform the entire way we think about it. But I just wanted to, to wrap it up. And first of all, remarkably to you speak, but this is a closing question. Um, you know, what's your take home message for, for, for our listeners? And, and, you know, and maybe also what are you up to next? Um, in terms of next, I'm currently at, at the same time as working on National Park Cities. I'm working on a project at the moment, and I don't want to go down a long rabbit hole at the end of the, the conversation. Um, but basically, to in the UK, we have about 200,000 kilometres of footpaths. Um, and I worked during lockdown with 700 volunteers to create a network of 7,500 routes that connect 2,500 towns and cities so that people can live by the principle that you should be able to walk to a neighboring town or city, but then you should then be able to combine multiple routes to go on long distance journeys where every 15 to 20 kilometers, you end up in another town or city where you can sleep, eat for the night in a range of accommodation. So the, the, the similarity for me between the national park city work and that project is that they're both about filling gaps in, in our imaginations really about, um, about what should or could be being done that we're not currently doing. So we already have all the assets, many ways to be great national park cities, many cities around the world, but we need to fill some gaps. And with the footpath project, we've already got all the footpaths, but for some reason, no one has thought about putting them together into one understandable, accessible, uh, inviting system. So there's a link between the two. But um, what next? I mean, you know, it depends on who you are and you're listening, but I'm going to be inspired by what you said, you know, plant a bit more, walk just a little bit further. Those things will go a long way. Um, but, you know, we're, we're launching in October, um, during urban um, October, um, a campaign for there to be 25 national park cities around the world by 2025. I think Adelaide, uh, led by the Minister for South Australia. So London National Park City is very grassroots. In Adelaide, it's the Minister for Environment who's taking real leadership there. I think Adelaide might be the next national park city in the world, uh, which would be brilliant. And Luca, it'd be great to connect with you on that more at some point, uh, if, if you're going to be involved with that. Um, but, you know, maybe you're sitting in a city right now and you're thinking, wow, you know, I'd like my city to be a national park city. Um, but you're thinking, where, you know, where, where would the leadership come from? Um, and I'd say that the biggest challenge we have in this, this effort around there being more national park cities is around people who ask that question, not realizing that they could be that person. Right. You listening to this right now, whether you're an artist or a teacher or an architect or a health expert, whoever you are, you know, you could take your city to the, this next level of being a national park city uh, with a bit of enthusiasm and gnarl um, and involving as many people as possible. Daniel, I think you just epitomize a guerrilla geographer, an unlocker of imagination perhaps, and clearly a passionate advocate for, for better cities. 
Thank you so much for, for sharing that passion with us today, Mac. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on the Future City podcast. Join us at thefuturecity.org for more of what you heard.